Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, it is perhaps the largest expansion of veterans' benefits in history, and that doesn't happen overnight. How the VA is preparing for implementation of the Honoring Our PACT Act. Also this morning, Senator Sherrod Brown discusses his work on the PACT Act, as well as a new piece of legislation to address the nursing shortage that threatens the quality of all our health care. We have details on upcoming programs and activities for all ages at the Findlay-Hancock County Public Library. And in today's Throwback Thursday segment, how social networking in the digital age has changed the way humans are social and the way we network. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, January 26th, 2023. All in all, Snowmageddon 2023 turned out to be a bit of a dud yesterday. Just a couple of inches of snow. I mean, there was probably more than that, uh, but because it was so wet and heavy, it kind of got compacted and uh, all of it had been light, fluffy snow. It would have been much deeper, but uh, it was just right there on the cusp of freezing. So right there on the edge between snow and rain for uh, the... Uh, snow event yesterday and and thus it just was not a as as big of a an event as we expected it to be which we're not complaining about that it was certainly enough to make us start to look forward to spring in 53 days uh now until spring so there was enough of us uh enough of that to uh push us to did you um did you shovel the the drive uh, yesterday? It was almost not enough to get out the snowblower. You know, just just shovel it. I mean, it was just easier to shovel it. But it was that wet, heavy stuff, so it wasn't like it was an easy task. If you're lucky, you were able to just send the kids out to uh, shovel the walk, shovel the driveway. And research from the Medical University of Warsaw uh, says that... If we want to prevent our kids from getting sick, we need to get them more exercise. So there you go. Send them out and have them shovel the snow. Uh, Researchers studied the exercise levels and respiratory tract infections of more than 100 kids between the ages of 4 and 7. And their findings were that for every 1,000 steps that kids take per day, the number of days they experienced cold symptoms uh, decreased by four days. So for every 1,000 steps, you can prevent the common cold by uh, up to four days. Kids who participate in sports for three or more hours a week also saw a benefit over kids who did not Uh, play sports on a regular basis. The study authors stress further research is needed to determine whether there is a cause and effect or whether it's just a casual relationship between health, uh, keeping your kids healthy, and uh, getting them exercise. Those two are related. It certainly makes sense. And I just mention it if you uh, need an excuse to get your kids out and tell them to uh, shovel the driveway. Again, this was uh, kids ages four to seven, so that might be a little young to shovel the driveway, but you get the idea, right? Where we're going with this. Uh, Let's see. This is really disturbing. Every day, it seems we have to have something new to be afraid of and concerned with 
the end of civilization as we know it, mankind is doomed kind of story. And I saw this on the Newswire this morning, and it certainly uh, raised those images for me. Scientists, it says here, have created a robot that can turn into liquid metal. If you remember the movie Terminator 2, the uh, killer robot that could turn itself into liquid metal and flow under doors and you know all of these things. Um, and now apparently this is a this is reality here. Uh, Chinese uh, the Chinese University of Hong Kong uh, have created a shape shifting robot. They were inspired by the sea cucumber, which is a creature that can turn from solid to liquid and back again. And uh, using that as the inspiration <laughs> and maybe one or two too many viewings of Terminator 2, uh, these engineers created a shape-shifting robot, and there's video of this showing a human-shaped robot turning into metal to get through the bars of a cage. Uh, the robot can also conduct electricity. Uh, Dr. Shengfeng uh, Pang says this capability will give robots more functionality. Now, they envision this as being used to dispense medication into a patient's body. So, using it for good. But isn't that the way these things always start out? That they are being supposed to be used for good, and invariably someone will find a way to use them for evil. It's just one of those, mankind is doomed, and uh, here we are contributing to our own destruction. That's, that's what's going on here. So anyway, that's what we uh, need to be uh, worried about uh, here this morning. A couple of other uh, interesting stories among the uh, most buzzworthy stories of the day to uh, start off your morning here. This I thought was kind of interesting from the Ford Motor Company. Customers who ordered a Bronco, the new Ford Bronco SUV, are now being offered a $2,500 credit to change their order to a different model. This sounds like uh, the airlines back about a month ago that were offering, uh, were offering travelers uh, refunds and incentives uh, to skip their flights because they couldn't they couldn't take everywhere where they needed everyone where they needed to go. Um, they say it is because of supply chain issues, and the uh, $2,500 credit is being offered to people whose uh, Ford Bronco SUV has been ordered but not yet produced. They can use the credit for any other Ford product. You can buy anything else except the Bronco. A small number of people who signed a contract for a new Bronco in 2021 will get an additional $2,500 to order a Bronco without the Sasquatch, the hardtop, or the Lux package. You can still get a Bronco, which is the base model instead of the uh, upgrades. So... <laughs> <laughs> coming up with a unique solution to uh, the uh, supply problem. Customers ha have until March 7th to decide whether to uh, take the incentive, it says. <laughs> All kinds of things happen. When you uh, get into these orders, you can't fill. you got to do something. Coming up with uh, creative solutions there. Interesting. 
Uh, did you hear about this? The uh, infamous Razzie Awards are uh, walking back one of the nominations from this year. The Academy Awards nominations for the Oscars were announced this week, and it is traditional the day before the Oscars announcement, which was what on Monday they announced the uh, nominations for the Razzie Awards. The Golden Raspberries honor the worst of Hollywood from the previous year, and those were announced on Sunday. Um, then on Wednesday, the uh, group behind the Razzies had to issue a public apology to actress Ryan Kiera Armstrong, who was nominated in the Worst Actress category for her role in the movie Firestarter. Here's the thing that caused the backlash. Uh, she's only 11 years old. She's only a kid, and she was up for the Worst Actress of the Year. And people kind of uh, felt that that was inappropriate. I mean, she's a kid, after all, and this could be seen as bullying and, and all of that. The awards... Uh, received backlash for nominating a child actor for one of their categories. The co-founder of the Razzies, John Wilson, said sometimes you do things without thinking. So they issued a sincere apology and said that uh, Ms. Armstrong will not be on the final ballot. And the Razzies said that they will now institute a rule for nominees that they must be 18 years or older. I think that's a good thing. And I think... Uh, kudos to them. Good for them for uh, owning up to their mistake. And I, I do think it was uh, kind of a, like they said, you just do things without without thinking. I didn't see the movie, so I don't know how bad the acting was. But again, it's a kid, so you know, cut him a break. I like that. Good idea. And uh, finally, among the uh, first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, scientists have used an anti-aging gene to create a treatment that could rewind your heart's biological age. Have we discovered the fountain of youth? A team from the University of Bristol and the Multimedica Group studied the mutant gene BPIFB4, which is a gene found in many people who live to be 100 years or older. Uh, these genes could help keep the heart young by protecting it from disease, it says here. Scientists administered a mutant anti-aging gene to laboratory mice, and it stopped the decay in heart function brought on by age. The older mice, in fact, actually saw their hearts de-age. The study also examined how the treatment would work on human heart cells in a lab. Positive results out of that. And so, of course, the next um, stage of this, the uh, researchers say we're now interested in determining if giving the protein if giving the protein instead of the gene uh, can also work. Um, their findings says confirm the healthy mutant gene can reverse the decline of heart performance in older people. So the next step is to uh, perform this experiment on humans. So we'll see. Could reverse aging of the heart. Wow. Amazing stuff. Let's I message to scientists. Let's do more of this 
and a little bit less of the shape-shifting robot research. You know what I mean? Let's do, let's focus on these things. There you go, some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. A little more snow could fall today, a high of 33. Snow showers are possible tonight, a low of 22. The group project for the Hancock Leadership Class of 2023 is called Hancock County TAPS, honoring those who served. Hancock County TAPS will work to ensure that whenever possible, every military funeral in Hancock County includes a live rendition of TAPS which is a ceremonial bugle call that signals the end of service. Kia Egbert says the Hancock Leadership Class is passionate about supporting local veterans and is very excited to work on the project with the community. Learn more about the project and how you can be a part of it on our website. A new program in Ohio is helping to improve maternal and infant health. It's called the Comprehensive Maternal Care Program. It provides care to families covered by Medicaid. It's estimated that Ohio Medicaid will invest $5 million in the program by the end of its first year and reach more than 14,000 pregnant and postpartum patients. Nearly 80 medical practices will be enrolled into the program. WTOL 11's Amanda Fay reporting. Cleveland Guardians manager Terry Francona's iconic scooter was stolen over the weekend, but police say it has since been recovered. The scooter has become part of Francona's legacy with the team as he's been spotted by fans riding at home after games at Progressive Field. The Guardians once featured a bobblehead with Francona riding his scooter as a game day giveaway. The report of the theft comes on the heels of Guards Fest, which brought players and fans together for the weekend. Francona was among those who appeared at the event. Kate Burdett, ONN News. And the Guardians posted on their Twitter account a thank you to the Cleveland Police Department for helping Skip find his hog. Children of Hancock County with a passion for literature have an opportunity to express their creative side in the Finley-Hancock County Public Library's Tell a Tale Short Story Contest. Young scribes from kindergarten through fifth grade who live in Hancock County or attend a Hancock County school may submit an original story that's no more than 350 words in length. Any child submitting a story for Tell a Tale will automatically have the cover illustration of their story entered into the cover illustration contest that will be judged by volunteers from the Mazza Museum. Get more details on how to get your kid involved in the contest on our website. Matt Demchek for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Well, outside of a little partisan posturing, one thing that did get done in the last Congress was passage of the Honoring Our Pact Act, which set in motion perhaps the largest expansion of veterans' benefits in history. And that doesn't happen overnight. Joining us this morning to talk about how the VA is preparing for implementation of that measure is the Deputy Undersecretary of the Office of Policy and Oversight for the Veterans Benefits Administration in the Department of Veterans Affairs, Ronald S. Burke Jr. And Mr. Burke, this is a law that not only expands benefits for veterans exposed to burn pits and other toxic materials, it also adds more than 20 new presumptive conditions that will make veterans eligible for those benefits. So obviously this is a lot to implement in a short amount of time. It is, Chris, but we are prepared. We've been preparing for the passage of the PACT Act for some time. We've been hiring, uh, recruiting. We've hired uh, plenty of employees. We're on deck to hire an additional 1,900 before the year is over. We hired 2,000 new employees last year. We're implementing tools and technology. My message to your listeners, we are prepared. 
Obviously, the reason this needs to be done as quickly as possible is the fact that many veterans are desperately in need of this care as quickly as possible. What is the timeline for implementation? When can these uh, service members, affected service members, begin to file claims? So the good news, Chris, is that we want veterans to file now. Since the enactment of law on August 10th, we've received more than 265,000 PACT Act claims, and we've already decided more than 85,000 of those, uh, and the grant rate is close to 80%. Uh, this is effective now. We don't want folks to delay. We are processing claims. And in the Veterans Health Administration, they've already conducted more than 1.4 million toxic exposure screenings. So we are ready, we are prepared, and we don't want any delays. Are there retroactive benefits under this act that will be made available to those who have previously been denied benefit claims? So it's important that veterans file their claims within the first year of enactment to protect the earliest effective date. The earliest effective date uh, would be the passage of law on August 10th. Uh, and we are encouraging both veterans and survivors, even if they've had a claim previously denied, if they believe they're entitled, please file a claim. So it would be the process of reapplying if you've applied and been denied in the past. That is correct. Those veterans or survivors that had been denied in the past need to reapply. And we have an excellent intuitive website, va.gov slash pack. That is a step-by-step guide on how to file a claim. And we also have a listing of accredited representatives at the county, state, and national level that are willing to assist veterans and survivors in filing those claims. Very important point there. And I, I guess this would be along those same lines. Uh, are there some of those presumptive conditions that haven't yet been fully implemented? And if so, can veterans proactively apply for benefits uh, ahead of uh, that implementation? Uh, all of the conditions listed in the PACT Act are being implemented now. Okay. Uh, veterans do not have to delay. Uh, we pulled the, uh, the uh, resources together to ensure that veterans did not have to wait. And so all of the 20-plus conditions are eligible for veterans to file those claims today. Now, you were touching on this a little bit earlier, and I want to go back and and sort of highlight this or underscore this, because uh, as has been well documented, uh, the VA is notorious for a backlog of claims of all kinds. Um, How does the VBA uh, plan to address this big influx of claims so as to avoid any additional and unnecessary delays? Well, Chris, I can tell you that in the last 12 months, VA had record-setting productivity. We completed more claims in faster time with higher accuracy than any time in our history. During the past year, we've hired uh, 2,000 additional net new employees to our organization. This year, we are on track to add an additional 1,900 employees. We've deployed tools and technology that allows us to reduce processing times. And for your listeners, uh, I want to draw one uh, one, uh, distinct point. We are hiring. And so if you want to join us in this challenge, this opportunity to serve veterans, please apply. We are hiring and we are prepared 
and already processing claims. And by the way, I guess it should also be pointed out as a bit of a sidebar, when you're talking about adding staffing and, and being able to quickly process claims, I mean, I, I would guess that uh, benefits the entire continuum of, of care that you provide, not just under the PACT Act. Uh, absolutely. That's a great point. We're here to serve all veterans. Uh, we have increased our resources. We've put new steps and processes in place for PACT Act. But the VA is here to serve all veterans, survivors, family members, and caregivers. And one other uh, final question with respect to the claims uh, process or filing for a claim uh, under the PACT Act, given that one of the key aspects of that measure uh, is that it assigns, as we mentioned, nearly two dozen presumptive conditions to these benefits. What evidence, if any, will veterans and survivors be required to submit when filing a claim? Uh, what what should uh, those individuals be prepared to present to the VA in the claims filing process? Uh, veterans should be prepared to submit, along with their claim, any medical uh, records, whether it be service treatment records or private records. Survivors should be prepared to submit a copy of a pertinent death certificate. Uh, but again, the list of accredited representatives on our website are available to assist veterans and survivors in compiling the information necessary to file a, a claim. Trying to make this as easy and as uh, get it through as quickly as possible. Again, Ronald S. Burke Jr. is the Deputy Undersecretary in the Office of Policy and Oversight for the Veterans Benefits Administration in the Department of Veteran Affairs. That is certainly a mouthful. Uh, Ms. Burke, you mentioned a website uh, dedicated to getting this information out on the Honoring Our PACT Act. Mention that again for folks. VA.gov slash PACT or 1-800-MY-VA-411. Ms. Burke, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Senator Sherrod Brown joins us on the line this morning. Senator, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. First of all, we appreciate it. Always good to be back. Thanks. We we were speaking uh, just a moment ago about the implementation of the PACT Act, a piece of legislation that you worked very hard to get passed in the last Congress. How satisfied are you with the way the VA has handled the rollout of that law? I think that things have gone well. We passed this bill. As you may remember the history, um, the, uh, a woman came to see me about her son-in-law five years ago from Finley, Ohio. I'm sorry, from, not from Finley, sorry, from Sandusky, another bu old Buckeye Conference mm -hmm. city. Sorry about that. Right. Um, came to see me about her son-in-law who had been exposed to these burn pits. And we worked with her. Eventually, we, we wrote this bill with the chair of the Veterans Committee and got it through. The bill's named after her son-in-law who passed away. Um, a couple of years ago named Heath Robinson. Um, it, it means that any veteran exposed uh, that, that was exposed to these burn, these um, football field sized burn pits uh, that was exposed to them in Iraq or Afghanistan, that those veterans, if they develop one of 23 illnesses specified in the law, they get immediate care from the VA, either a clinic or the big VA hospitals. 
Um, the, the point now I'm doing, I've done 23 roundtables with veterans in every corner of Ohio, small county, big county, everywhere, um, and I'm going to do more, is to make sure veterans know about this because if they sign up, even if they're not sick, if they show any symptoms, they'll get immediate care at the VA. So the VA's on board. The problem with the VA is we've got to hire more nurses and more doctors and more physical therapists, just like hospitals in Fenley and Sandusky and Toledo and everywhere else. There's a nursing shortage. It's one of the reasons I'm working with the Republican yeah. Senator from West Virginia on a bill to to train more nurses. And that was the other uh, piece that we wanted to uh, ask you about. Uh, speaking of health care, you are working on this uh, bipartisan measure aimed at alleviating the nursing shortage that we know exists in Ohio. And as we've seen in the news, uh, exists all over the country. Yeah, there are there are um, there are six. There are six hospitals in Ohio. I'm sorry, six nursing uh, nursing training facilities in Ohio. Uh, this bill is is now law. We got it in the past in, in December. Senator Capito, the Republican from West Virginia, and I. Uh, they're the, the closest one to people listening to this now is Firelands and Sandusky and Mercy and Toledo. There's also uh, training. There's also hospital nursing colleges in Dayton and Cincinnati, in Canton and Columbus. So um, we will. This will mean more nurses, and that's good for the VA. It's good for Fenley. It's good for Toledo. It's good for hospitals everywhere. We'll still face. It's still a challenge because we just need to attract more people in nursing. Um, nurses didn't get much time off during the last three years, as many others did working at home. So um, there's more retirements. There's all those challenges. Um, how would uh, folks learn more about the uh, benefits of, of that law and how it would uh, help those who are interested in going into the field? Well, people should contact any of those. Six. They can contact our office, okay. of course, always um, in our healthcare, the people that worked on that bill in my office, but they can contact those schools directly. And if, so if people are listening in Finley Engineering and Fostoria and you're part of the state or Toledo, um, the, the, the hospital, the, the, the nursing colleges, I said, are Firelands and Sandusky it will go um, and, and uh, Mercy and Toledo. Yes. It will go through them. Uh, real quickly, before we let you go, I do have to ask you about the big story uh, in the news this week and that is the debt ceiling. How long is it going to take uh, in order to resolve this issue? And should the president uh, sit down with Republicans to come up with a, a plan for reducing spending so that we can avoid hitting this the next time? Well, we're not going to avoid hitting it. It's It's been, it, it, it ballooned hit it its greatest period. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly right. It ballooned at its greatest period during the Trump years. We have gotten it a little more under control. Um, this is not, people say that, 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 um, that what, what matters here is this is paying what we already owe. When we talk about the debt ceiling, it's money we already know, owe to send the government into default. I mean, even, even the banks who are, you know, no, no, the big, large Wall Street banks, no friends of mine. I met with them yesterday. They are speaking out now against this and how damaging it is to do this. And, and ultimately, what bothers me the most is if we refuse to pay these bills, it means Social Security benefits and veterans benefits, two things I fight for here every day, um, will not go out. And um, troops go unpaid, all the things that happen. So let's pay our bills. We'll have these debates. We'll have these discussions. We all want to get spending under control. It, it just exploded during the Trump years. It's still not, we still don't have it managed well. But to use the debt ceiling debate is simply not paying our bills and not being who we are as a nation. We will leave it there. Again, Senator Sherrod Brown, thanks very much for the time today. We appreciate it. Always. Thanks, Chris. Good to be with you. Thanks. 
whole bunch of things going on in the month of February at the Findlay-Hancock County Public Library. And uh, Director Sarah Clevidence is with us on the line to talk about what's happening. Sarah, thanks very much for taking the time. First of all, we appreciate it. And uh, again, folks will, uh, which we were uh, originally had Sarah uh, on the uh, schedule for yesterday, but Mother Nature had other plans. And so, uh, Sarah, I appreciate your uh, flexibility and uh, joining us this morning because we do have lots to talk about, uh, including a, a storytelling or a story writing contest for young people. I know that uh, that is one of the big things that's going on right now. Tell us more about this. Yeah, the Telltale contest uh, will start accepting. Uh, stories on February 1st. Okay. This contest is for children who are in kindergarten through fifth grade. Um, they can submit a story that they write or, with or without a cover illustration. Uh, and the winning entries will be published in a book that we'll keep in the library collection. Now, if you do uh, submit an illustration with the story, there uh, is something special uh, with that, right? Yes, the uh, Maza Museum will be helping to judge the cover illustrations, uh, which is pretty yeah. exciting to have those experts on tap. Absolutely. So uh, this could be on uh, any topic or, you know, what are you looking for here? Kids can write about anything they'd like. Uh, they're limited to 350 words. Okay. Uh, and the child can either write the story themselves or they can tell the story to an adult who then writes it down for them. Um, we know for some of our, our youngest entrants, right. they might not be ready to write those 350 words on their own. And it's, all, can be, and it's always oh. cool to have a ghostwriter, as it were. And, well, <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> all of the big writers have those. So, yeah. Uh, and then how? what is the uh, submission uh, process? You'll submit the story to the library. There's a just a single page, a telltale entry form available in the children's department or on our website. Okay. Uh, and it needs a parent signature on that as well, saying that mom and dad say it's okay to enter the contest. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll be accepting stories through uh, Tuesday, February 28th. So okay. the entire month of February. So the entire month of February. That was going to be my, my other uh, question on that. And more <laughs> details, uh, of course, on the uh, webpage. So check that out. Again, that's just one of the things going on in the month of February. There's a whole plethora of uh, activities and events and programs and such. Yes, there are. Our story times will resume on the week of February 6th with preschool story time, baby story time, and the story time at our Arlington branch. Uh, many meetups will start back up again that week. Uh, and then, you know, lots of our other standalone things in February for kids, like Makerspace, uh, Symphony Storytime will be back in February. Um, we'll have a, a young writer's workshop for children under the age of, um, or I'm sorry, for kids in, in kindergarten through sixth grade. So okay. If you're thinking about entering that tale, Telltale contest, it, it, that might help you get a start for um, writing your story. And we're really excited to work with Youth Theater from uh, the Marathon Center for the Performing Arts for a Moana Junior Party. They'll be doing a production of that um, soon, so we'll have some of the cast over for a special program at the library. Well, that'll be fun. So a lot of things uh, going on. The, the Children's Department is very busy, but there's plenty for adults as well. Uh, you may remember last year's Community Read author was Sadiqa Johnson. And she'll be one of our virtual author talk authors in February, talking about her new book, The House of Eve. So if you enjoyed that uh, event last year, you might enjoy hearing what she's up to now. 
And then I think one of the most perfect for the season programs we've got here is uh, one on soups and stews. And watching that snow yesterday, it definitely <laughs> feels like soup weather to me. Absolutely. Uh, now, for uh, all of these programs, uh, is registration required or is this just a show up to participate kind of thing? Uh, a few of the programs do require registration just because space is limited, but I, th I think for most of the ones I mentioned, anybody can just show up and enjoy. Okay, and uh, for those who want more information, uh, all of that is on the website as well, right? Absolutely, finleylibrary.org. Okay, uh, anything else that we need to uh, make sure that we highlight here this morning? Well, we are... We are excited to be working with United Way on a couple of things uh, this month. Uh, we'll have a program for our teens at the end of February uh, about volunteering in the community. So they'll learn about opportunities to volunteer at the library, but also out um, in the community at large, which is a great opportunity for teens. And then uh, the United Way's uh, tax repair program, uh, VITA, will be back again uh, in the library. Uh, they'll be starting at early February, running through uh the tax due date in April. And, you know, while this is not a library program, we're really excited that we can offer them the space in our Blanchard room um, so that they can come and help yeah. our community get their taxes done. Yeah, such a uh, an important program and good to see that uh, back for this uh, tax year. So uh, make note of that as well. And uh, obviously... Uh, this is the time of year, uh, as you were mentioning earlier, to uh, curl up with a good book. Again, a day like yesterday where we just had a bunch of snow and everybody was hunkering down at home. Great time to curl up with a, by the fire with a good book. And you can always make some uh, recommendations if folks are looking for uh, reading material uh, during the uh, cold winter months. Absolutely. You know, a lot of folks might not realize that we have a, a personalized librarian service available um, on our website. So you can just give us a little information about what you like reading, um, what you've enjoyed in the past, what you're looking for in your next book, and, and we'll use that to pull together a, a whole bunch of selections for you. It's what we do every day in the library when you stop in, but sometimes you want to put a little more thought into what you're really looking for in your next book. And so this kind of can help you gather your thoughts and, and give us a lot of information so we can make really good recommendations for you. We've got the link up to the Findlay-Hencock County Public Library website uh, at our webpage, goodmornings.net. So check that out online. And again, uh, Executive Director Sarah Clevidence, the Findlay-Hencock County Public Library with us this morning talking about uh, programs, events, activities, and such going on in the month of uh, February. Very, very busy month. Shortest month of the year, and it may be one of the busiest for you. How does that work? <laughs> we just cram a lot of fun in to get through the rest of this winter. <laughs> there, there you go. Sarah, thanks very much for taking the time. As always, we appreciate it. Thank you. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. A mother in central Florida is accusing her daughter's school district of banning her from volunteering at school because of her connection to OnlyFans. You're familiar with OnlyFans, right? The adult-only website. It's sort of like TikTok for uh, <clears throat> grown-ups, if you know what I mean. Victoria Treese has filed a lawsuit against Orange County Public Schools after she was told back in October that she was no longer welcome uh, in her role uh, to, uh, volunteering in the school because of her participation on adults-only internet sites. Now, she's been volunteering at the school for five years, and apparently they only recently discovered uh, her extracurricular activities. 
and uh, have determined that they are inappropriate. Her lawyers are accusing the district of denying the mother of three the right to take part in her children's lives. <laughs> well, I think it all depends on how you're taking part in your children's lives, if you know what I mean. The district has yet to comment on the lawsuit. <laughs> Stay tuned. Uh, what about this story? I guess you could say the real estate market in Tennessee is uh, red hot. Quite literally, a mansion described by a realtor as a tragic total loss by fire has uh, been put on the market, was put on the market for nearly one and a half million dollars. Now, again, I'll go back and repeat this. The mansion described as a total loss by fire was put on the market for one and a half million dollars. It sold in four days. <laughs> four days for a house that burnt down to sell for a million and a half bucks. The uh, burned building's new owners are actually from England. The family currently resides in Houston, Texas, and have been hunting for homes in Nashville when the smoldering mansion located in the upscale suburb of Franklin, Tennessee, caught their eye. <laughs> Mike Thakur uh, tell, told reporters, The whole thing is an incredible house. It's the house on top of the hill. He plans on renovating the home to fit his family's needs. Well, I would hope he would renovate it. I mean, it's... It's, it burned down. He said uh, he will probably uh, have to rip it all the way down to the studs. He said, uh, I'm not sure we anticipated quite so many renovations, but we decided we'd go for the challenge. Until So a million and a half to buy the property, and then how much are you going to have to sink into it in order to rebuild it until the house is safe to occupy the family of five will live in a guest house that is located on the ground. So, you do have that option. <laughs> the, the main mansion may be in ashes, but there is a guest house on the, on the property. The uh, Zillow offering, uh, the listing online, states that the home is under a pending offer, but it does not disclose the final sale price. But it was listed for $1.49 million. All right. Now, that is a red-hot real estate market right there. This from the international file, the broken news. In Buckinghamshire, England, a drunken man somehow managed to steal a public bus and caused a trail of devastation. <laughs> That's actually the way it's described in the report. A trail of devastation. Uh... Not only did he manage to steal a bus, but there were other people on it at the time. They, of course, fled once he took control of the wheel. The drunken suspect crashed the bus into several other vehicles before being apprehended. Miraculously, no one was hurt in the whole melee. The Thames Valley Police told local news reporters, when people say, when people tell you that when you've had a drink, you need to take the bus, it isn't meant to be taken literally. <laughs> I wonder if that's the excuse he tried to give. Well, I was drunk, so I took the bus. It's not meant to be taken literally. 
The suspect, uh, the suspect's name was not given, but a spokesperson says he remains in police custody at this time. <laughs> gonna just take the bus. No, that's not what I meant. That's no, not take the bus. Just take the bus. Um, I love this story. Well, let me hold on to that. I'll get, I'll get to that story here in a second. How about this? This is also from the international file in the uh, broken news. This from the Netherlands, where treasure hunters armed with metal detectors have flocked to a small Dutch town to dig for buried Nazi loot after a news publication um, published a map from World War II. The frenzy started a few weeks ago when the government released a trove of documents, among them a hand-drawn map marked with a big red X to show where German soldiers support supposedly stashed jewelry and cash stolen from a bank hit by a bomb in 1944. <laughs> I mean, how, how cliche is that? You've got a hand-drawn map with a, with a big red X. X marks the spot, apparently. Well, that was enough. Uh, when that became public, that was enough. For treasure hunters, uh, they were set off by that. Uh, local resident of the village, Marco Ru uh, Rudvelt, said, Of course, it is spectacular news that has enthralled the whole village, but no one has found anything. And as it turns out, it's not clear uh, that if anyone were to find anything, they'd be allowed to keep it anyway. So uh, ownership of whatever property may be there. Uh, is still very much in dispute, but it's caused this uh, big run on this town in in the Netherlands. Uh, and here is the story. I just this is my maybe my favorite story of the day. Could be one of my favorite stories of the week. It is a story of karma out of the state of Florida, where one man won a million dollars after another person cut in front of him in the line at the supermarket. Allow me to explain. Steven Munoz Espinoza was going to buy a lottery ticket at the lottery machine, uh, then decided to buy one at the register uh, instead. Apparently, uh, something didn't work with the machine. It was out of order. He was going to use the automated machine, but he couldn't for whatever reason, so he decides to go to the register to buy the uh, lottery ticket. Uh, the uh, ticket, it, so he goes to the uh, register and some other guy cuts in, from, in front of him in the line. So, and apparently that guy bought a lottery ticket. Turned out to be nothing. So Mr. Espinoza gets up there, he buys his scratch-off ticket and it turns out to be a million-dollar winner. Take that. He opted to receive the winnings as a lump sum payment of $820,000 and plans to buy a home for his family. And it would have never happened <laughs> had this guy not cut in front of him in line. <laughs> and he didn't win anything. There's a lesson in there. There you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the news. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Kids across America are going to school hungry. Millions of kids every day. 
But one simple thing can help change all of this for a hungry child in America. Good, healthy food and the energy it brings. With help from caring people across America, No Kid Hungry is providing healthy meals and hope to hungry kids so they can build better futures. To learn more about ending child hunger in America, go to helpnokidhungry.org today. This message provided by WFIN. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. So here is the story, and this came from the website Science Alert, which reports on research uh, and and brings it down to kind of an everyday level. This is uh, not a uh, website for researchers themselves, for average people to explain uh, this scientific research. And this is out of Purdue University, where research shows that for the past 30 years, trees from the eastern United States have been migrating westward at a whopping nine and a half miles per decade. Trees have been migrating west. Uh, This is perplexing to scientists. Nobody knows exactly why. Uh, The common belief was that climate change would force trees to seek familiar climates uh, closer to the poles of the earth. So the belief was the trees would gradually migrate north or south But they're not. They're moving west. Uh, Even more odd is that changes in rainfall and precipitation only account for a tiny part of the migration, suggesting that there is more going on than scientists uh, know about. Um, They uh, analyzed, the Purdue University team analyzed 30 years worth of data from the U.S. Forest Service which covered the movements of 86 tree species between 1980 and 2015, trees that were located between Maine and Minnesota and as far south as Florida. And they found that more species had made shifts to the west than the north, and young trees more likely to have made this westward migration than the older ones. So a relatively recent trend. Now, to be clear... Trees do not migrate by picking up their roots and trudging through the forest. (laughs) It's not how this works. It's not what they're taking. But they are known for gradually shifting their population centers uh, over the course of several years to places that offer better growing conditions. Uh, When the conditions get less favorable in one area, saplings will start cropping up in other more suitable habitats. They are less likely to take root in those Uh, less hospitable areas, and instead will start growing in other places that are more hospitable. And this is one of the ways that they track shifting climate patterns is, by the way, trees uh, migrate. The process, um, once the older populations, the young saplings that will pop up in the new locations, and then once the older population of trees dies out, then that species will have established a new home. The process, while gradual, is happening faster than what scientists thought in the eastern U.S. Um, I mean, it's long been known that it's happening, but the direction of migration and the speed with which it is happening is perplexing scientists. 
And now, our Throwback Thursday segment this morning. Human connections are the backbone of all civilization. When we talk about networking with other people, you might, in this day and age, think of your social media networks or your networks uh, of business contacts. A couple of examples. But the advent of social media has dramatically altered the paradigm. Some would argue, not for the better. Matthew O. Jackson has been researching these social and economic networks for more than 25 years and has written a book called The Human Network, How to Social Position, How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Your Beliefs, and Behaviors. Back in March of 2019, we spoke to him about that book. It is today's Throwback Thursday. If you've been studying these human networks for a quarter century, obviously this predates online networking. First of all, talk about the basic concept of these human networks aside from that social media component. Sure, sure. So, you know, we're, we're heavily dependent on our friends, our colleagues, our acquaintances, our family for all kinds of things from information to advice to help to loans to opportunities mm-hmm. to get jobs. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're embedded in a, a, a social structure and these people around us are, are really important in determining how we behave. And how has social media kind of changed the paradigm of not just how we network, who we network with, but then what we get out of it, both consciously and subconsciously? Sure. I think, you know, the uh, two, two things. One is I think people are a lot more aware of social networks now that they see them. You know, the, you know Facebook makes it very plain that you're in a network. I mean, LinkedIn does as well and, you know, suggests new connections to you and and the, the the wonderful part about it is it allows us to connect on a level that we've never seen before and to maintain connections and to instantly be in touch with people at a great distance and to keep up on what other people are doing. At the same time, it's also uh, partly driven by algorithms and uh, and, and our own uh, proclivities. We, we end up connecting with people who look very similar to ourselves, and we end up hearing news we like, and yeah. and so there's a lot of filtering going on as well, and and these yeah. things are sort of interplaying right now. Yeah, you got to wonder whether it's the humans controlling the algorithms or the algorithms controlling the humans. Uh, you know, we were just talking yesterday about how it is not uncommon these days to feel like the black sheep in the family or the odd man out in your social circle simply because your political and or social beliefs are different from everyone else. And that's a little bit of what you're talking about here, too. You you go a step further to say that today's networks uh, often are what drive the polarization in the first place. Yes. I, you know, it, when you look at, at our networks, they're, they're incredibly segregated. Um, you know, we, we, there's a term called homophily, which refers to the fact that humans tend to associate with other people who are really similar to themselves. And and when you look at that, it's really striking. Um we, we did one study in, in high schools looking at close friendships and uh, take a high school that was rough, a little more than 50% white and a little under half black and then a little bit of Hispanic. And people were 15 times more likely to be close friends with somebody from their own race than somebody of another race. Mm. Uh, that, that means that these, you know, these people's networks are, are almost completely separate from each other. 
and and that produces very different opinions and norms and beliefs across different groups. And and that's something that's you know very very resilient in human networks. Yeah, and and kind of ironic that uh, as you said, we now are able to kind of see this, see these networks through social media, and yet uh, it's staring us right to the face, and we are still you know hampered by that that sort of uh, polarization. And you also hear a lot of people uh, asking these days, why can't we get along? Why can't we be more civilized? But often it turns out we are actually propagating the very thing that we claim to be so frustrated with right 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 and it's difficult to reach out and to put yourself in new situations and to feel uncomfortable you know to to go out and meet new groups of people and and uh so it's it's easier to to hang out with people that you understand and and can relate to and and Mm -hmm. that that's sort of basic human nature and at some level it's comforting and and makes us happy but on the other level it's it means that we don't have as much access to information or to jobs and other kinds of things, depending on what our group is. Yeah, so we talk about our you know, living in our bubble, and again, we would think these days with so many opportunities to connect with so many different people, and yet here we are kind of still living in our bubble. And again, that speaks to the, the subtitle of the book, where you uh, talk about how your social position determines your beliefs and behaviors or even your power within a group, when I think if you ask most people, they would probably think it was the other way around. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, it's, it, I think we, it's easy for us to overlook how important our structure is and to think how much, you know, we we, uh, we, we control our own destinies. And to a large extent, we're shaped by the people around us. You know, we can put ourselves in better situations or worse situations, but we're incredibly social animals and, and we're influenced by our peers. So with all of that said, and again, this, this human networking is not a bad thing. It's uh, been around in society from the beginning of time. It's what drives the world forward in many cases. But ultimately, how do we learn then to kind of keep control of who we are and the way we think and what we believe rather than just allowing ourselves to kind of go with the flow of everyone else? I mean, I think one thing is to question sources and to, to look out. You know, there's there's an uh, an incredible example um, of how wise the human race can be, which is was a study called Vox Populi, meaning Voice of the People, the Wisdom of the Crowd, that was published by uh, Sir Francis Galton in 1907. It was, you know, there's a group of people that are trying to guess the weight of an ox, and it was at a fair. Um, there were 787 people that entered guesses. The ox weighed 1,198 pounds. The average guess was 1,197. Hmm. So it was just, you know, it's amazing how, as a group of people, we can be incredibly smart. But getting that information is really hard. You know, some people were guessing 500. Some people were guessing 1,500. Yeah. So how do you get all that information? And, you know, so, so there's lots of people out there. And if I could get everybody's information and, and really process it, um, I, you know, people would know a lot. It's it's just difficult to reach out and to reach beyond our our, our uh, insulated yeah. social circles. You kind of have to make a concerted effort to do that. Really fascinating study: the human network, how your social position determines your power, beliefs, and behaviors. Matthew Jackson is the author. And do you have a website in conjunction with a book where we can learn more? Sure. I mean, if you Google Matthew O. Jackson, uh, you can find my website and, and there's a lot of information about the book and lots of extra pictures and fun things. 
From March of 2019, our conversation with Matthew O. Jackson, author of the book, The Human Network, How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Beliefs, and Behaviors. You can learn more about it at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. And that will wrap up our podcast for today. Again, a reminder, you can get more information about all the topics we talk about each and every day on the program at our webpage. Again, goodmornings.net. Check us out online. Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.